First Peter chapter number three, one of the concepts that I was thinking about this week as I study for the sermon is the biblical word called. You find that word a lot. Now, when I say called today, what do you think of? There, there's several things that we can think of. One of them is, you know, I was called today on the telephone by somebody and uh, they called me and I, I got to talk to them. Another concept of the word called is what, who, what are you called? What is your job title or what is your name called? And so we, we hear that word called a lot of times to talk about what we are called. But on, in Bible times, the word called so many times was speaking of to be summoned. You were being summoned by a higher authority. You were called to court. You were called to stand before the king. Or, or you were called to do something else. And the Bible uses it frequently to describe concepts around the Christian life. Now, before we get there, one of the interesting things that I threw in in Sunday school is, do you know when the first time somebody is called to be filled with the Spirit is in the Bible? It's in Exodus 31. Don't turn there. Uh, you can turn there later. Exodus 31. And men, Aholab, and some other men are called and filled with the Spirit of God to perform craftsmanship, to build the things for the temple. And so they were summoned by a higher power, that is the God of the universe, to, to perform craftsmanship. Well, in the New Testament, many times, we, the word call is used to talk about things surrounding the Christian life. For example, um, Paul told Timothy, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And so Timothy was called to eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 9, Paul says that the Corinthians are called to the fellowship of God. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Many times in the New Testament, Christians are simply um, designated by the term the called. For example, in Hebrews 9.15, Therefore He, talking about Christ, is a mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may have eternal life or eternal inheritance. And so the word called so many times is speaking about somebody who has salvation. But when we're talking about salvation, we're talking about specific aspects of salvation almost all the time. For example, um, uh, we are we are called to receive an inheritance, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. The interesting thing about being called, now think about this when you are summoned to court. When somebody summons you to court, are you ever unsummonsed? No. When you're called to salvation, are you ever uncalled? When you're called to receive an eternal inheritance, are you ever uncalled? No, that's not even, that's my spell checker. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at my document right now. Uncall is not even a word. It, it, it doesn't exist. It's a word I made up. We can't uncall ourselves. And so one of the fascinating concepts and where I'm going with this in, in Peter's epistle, he uses this term called quite frequently. First Peter chapter two and verse number nine. Let's look at that together. First Peter two nine. Peter tells us that believers are called or summoned to eternal glory. He says, 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own position, possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who what? Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're, we're summoned to be in the light. We're, and to have this eternal inheritance and all the things described here. Look at, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 10. 1 Peter 5 and verse number 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, strengthen, and establish. Restore, re- confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so Peter uses this language quite frequently to talk about us being called to eternal glory. Now that's, that's in the future, right? We're called to a future glory. And it's coming in the future and we anticipate it. But what are we called to right now, according to Peter? Well, a few weeks ago, I talked about 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 20 and 21. Look at those with me, will you? What does it say? For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? That's the question. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why? For to this you have been called. So Peter says, yes, in the future we're called to this great glory, but in the present time, one of the things that we're called to is the call to suffer. And we don't like talking about that so well, so I'm going to move on from that and ask this question. Does that mean then that we in this life are just to be like a bunch of Stoics and grit our teeth and, and bear it and say, oh, I'm suffering, but I can just go through it? And the answer is no, because the, the critical part of the passage that, that Frank read for us today is found in chapter 3 and verse number 9, and we find that there's something else that we're called to, and this is, this is, this is amazing. Look at what he, he says. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but for, to the contrary, bless for to this you were called so that you may obtain a blessing. And so we are called to bless in this life. So think about the logic. The logic is that one day we will experience eternal glory. We will be glorified. But on this earth right now, we are called to suffer and we are called to bless. Now whose life does that sound like? Jesus Christ. Doesn't the Bible say that right now he is experiencing eternal glory? That all nations will glorify him, right? But when you when you look at his, his earthly ministry, you find that he, first of all, he suffered. As a matter of fact, Luke um, talks about the very beginnings of his ministry. And remember that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Remember that? So he begins his ministry. He goes in the Nazareth. He reads Isaiah 61 in the synagogue and he starts preaching from Isaiah 61. And what's their reaction? Oh, Jesus, you're so wonderful, carpenter's son. Is that what they did? No. If you go to Israel today, you can go to the precipice where they tried to throw him off the cliff. So Jesus was called to suffer. He suffered. So the Bible says that he picked up very next paragraph there. And Luke says that he went to Capernaum. The house of the comforter, this village of the comforter. 
And he spent three years of ministry blessing people. As a matter of fact, when you, when you look at the characterization in Matthew, I believe it is, Matthew chapter number 9, here's what Matthew 9 says about his early ministry in Capernaum. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and, listen to the language, healing every disease and every affliction. Now, what was he doing? He was simultaneously preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and being a blessing to the people around him. Now, is that our mission? We're suffering here for the cause of Christ occasionally, and yet in the midst of that, we are to bless. Jesus is our pattern. We are to call, call to endure suffering here on earth, yet at the same time, we are to bless. And why would we want to do this? And this is, this is so critical to everybody hear this, everybody listening, right? Why is this the pattern? It is this, that when we live to bless other people, we provide an opportunity for the gospel. We provide an opportunity for the gospel to be, to be displayed so that we have a chance to declare the gospel. You see the difference? We show the gospel, we live the gospel of Jesus Christ and bless everyone around us so that it gives us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. It is so important that you do not divorce the work of the gospel from the message of the gospel. Those two things are extremely important for us to see. And that's that's why we're here. So in these five verses we read today, we see that we are to... Bless the family, bless the non-family, and then we're going to see the results of a, of a fulfilled life. And so Peter is answering this question. How can we live, and this is the question that you and I need to ask, how can we live in such a way that we can proclaim the gospel to other people? And this is what he's shown us here in verse number 8 through verse number 12. Notice what he doesn't say. And this is very important. When we read these verses, did any of these verses say, please go outside the church and irritate everybody around you? Why don't you go out and protest? Does it say that in in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 8, 9 or 10? Does it say, take the weapons that our society uses against somebody else and use those? No, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the call of Christians, is countercultural. In these verses today, Peter is telling us how to live such a life that when you look at the list, the first thing you see in this list is that this list can only be made possible by the Spirit of God. Read verse number 8. That is only accomplished by God's Holy Spirit working in your life because it's not natural to you or to me. It's, it's not a list that causes God to favor you over other Christians. This is a list of what the Holy Spirit will do in your life as you grow in the Lord. In other words, if I could rephrase this list in chapter number 3, verse number 8, this list is the characteristic of a life that, that um, happens when the Holy Spirit, the living power of the Holy Spirit flows out of you. So let's just look at number um, verse number 8. And let's talk about how do we bless our family? How do we bless our church family? 
Well, first thing we see is that we have five adjectives listed here, and these are commonly applied to members of our own household. Now, I read a little bit about this this week. It was scandalous in a way that Peter used these adjectives, they're all adjectives in the original language, to describe how you're to treat people in the church because it was supposed to only be used for people in the family. And so there's a little bit of a scandalous thing. And the first thing that he says is that we have like-mindedness. Like-mindedness. The word in the ESV is unity of mind. Unity of mind is a foundational value of the Christian community that unifies the body. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed in verse number 21 that they all be one. Talking about future Christians, they all be one. How much oneness? How one are we supposed to be? In other words, how one am I supposed to be with Michael? How much oneness? Jesus said this. He said, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our oneness of mind is supposed to be so great that it reflects the Holy Trinity. And the world is to see that. It's, a, it's an evangelistic tool. That is a close bond. I don't think it gets any closer than the bond that the Trinity has with one another. Notice something else. The result of that closeness is belief. The church's unity, the unity of the people in Providence Bible Church directly links to our evangelism. They're, they're inseparable. The early church displayed that kind of unity. Look at this in Acts chapter number 4. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. Is that unity of the early church? It is. Get the progression. Jesus prayed for unity in the church. And now the early church is displaying unity. And as we move through the New Testament, the picture gets filled out a little bit further. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, uh, look at this picture. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So that, that, that is close. If Christ is head and we are the body, then we are to do what the, the head says. Now, do we all do the same job? The answer is no. But our unity is very important that we have unity of mind. We have the same basic aim of serving Jesus Christ, and we do it together, not in isolation. So in reality, rather than being self-focused, we are to, to focus on helping one another achieve what God's will is for their life. Ephesians 4.13 explains how. Listen, this is very important. How do we achieve this, this? How do we achieve such unity? How do I achieve this unity with the teenager sitting on the back row? How do I achieve this unity with the senior saints sitting out here? How do we achieve unity as, as people from different backgrounds, different races, different economic status, different goals in life in general. How do we achieve this kind of unity? Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You want to know how we achieve unity? It's done 
by knowing Jesus Christ. It's only done in the Word of God. Apart from the Word of God, we cannot have a unity that's a lasting unity. I think of it this way. Um, Have you ever been to a symphony? I don't know if you've ever been there. In, in a symphony, the the this is the way after the lights dim. This is the way you know that the concert's about to start. The the concert master comes out. Uh, many times it's the first violinist, first chair, first violinist. They come out and they play a note. You ever heard him play that note? What follows? The biggest racket you've ever heard in your life, right? And everybody's just playing their own notes and they're trying to get tuned up. And there's always that one instrumentalist who everybody else has done, and they do that, that one note. You've heard him, right? At the very end, everybody's like, I'd hate to be that guy. But they're, they're playing everything, and it sounds like a cacophony. It sounds, it sounds really bad because everybody's playing their own note in their own time while they tune. Well, that's not the way the church is supposed to be, is it? But in our Western society, we like to think, hey, Nobody else is going to tell me what to do. Nobody, I'm going to, my, my Christian life is my business. Sometimes I hear that. That's between me and God. You ever heard that one? The truth is it's not. Because then the conductor comes out with the orchestra, and he, he raises his arms, and when they start playing beautiful music, are they all playing the same note? They're not. And that's what makes it beautiful, is they're playing harmoniously. And that's what makes the body of Christ beautiful, is when we have a unity of mind, we're living harmoniously, not all doing the same job, but we're accomplishing the same goal. Isn't that beautiful? We are to have unity of mind. Let's move on much quicker now. Second thing is sympathy. Sympathy. Be sympathetic. The word literally means to suffer together with. It it means to care deeply about the needs and joys and sorrows of others. Sympathy demands that we are able to see things from another person's point of view. To enter into their experience. And when Christ is our head and our minds are soaked in God's Word together, we will think the same way. And when this happens, Romans 12, verse 15, and 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says these sorts of things. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So we're to enter into somebody else's experience when we do this, aren't we? We're to be others-focused, not self-focused. As a matter of fact, preoccupation with me and sympathy for you cannot coexist. Make sense? How do I know somebody else's needs when I'm so focused on myself that I don't see anybody else outside of my needs? You know, we we see this very easily when uh, children are born. Who are the most self-focused beings on the planet? Those cute little babies. They don't care if you need to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning. When they're hungry, they want something to eat. They don't care about your sleep schedule. They don't care that you have to sit in the pastor's long sermon today and try to stay awake. They want food. They're self-focused. Now, they're cute, and I love holding little babies. 
And I'm at the age now where when I hold my granddaughter, she starts crying, I can hand her to her mother. And that's awesome, by the way. But we're not to be that way. There's, there's no recognition that somebody else may be suffering when it, when it comes to being a baby. So what am I trying to say? Don't be a big spiritual baby. We need, we need to look outside ourselves and see somebody else's uh, burns. A Scottish, a Scottish writer put it this way, a Scottish preacher. He said this. He was talking about how, how can Jesus, um, or how can we, in, well, let me just read it. He says, Moses, the greater man than Aaron was, was not called to be high priest. Moses wasn't called to be high priest. Aaron was. And this is very fascinating. Why? He said this. Because he had grown up in the palace. He had never felt the lash of the taskmaster, the blast of the brick kilns, the raw-fingered agony of unrequited toil. He couldn't be touched with the feelings of their infirmities, but Aaron could. He was there. And what he said is this. His conclusion was, we may have pity from above, but we can only have sympathy from beside. And that is why Jesus came to earth and he suffered. He entered into our pain and sorrow and suffering so that not only does he have pity from above, but he has sympathy from beside. And so we, in order to proclaim and bless other people, proclaim the gospel, we need to enter into their lives and have sympathy with them. Number three, brotherly love. You know what this word is? Everybody knows it. Yeah, Philadelphia, the verbal form. Brotherly love. It's the glue that ties all these virtues together. Um, it's it's the uh, demonstrated by unselfish service. We get the opportunity to display love in a in a loveless world, and our love must ever be increasing and ever abounding. This world, the only kind of world, love that this world has is for self. And so Christians are called to display love for others, brotherly love. I'm not going to talk about that one much. Let's move on to the next one. Compassionate. The ESV says, a tender heart. You know what that means? We, we don't say this. It would be, be a little bit incorrect to say what the Greek word actually means. You want to know what it means? It means tender bowels. Okay. Um, the, the Hebrew and the Greek both, the word here is talking about your, your intestines, your bowels. We don't talk that way, so we use the word heart today. But it's tender bowels. It's, it's, um, it's the feelings. It's the place of affection. It's, it's, uh, affection, love, and, and feeling. It's, it's your emotions when you feel them. And, and you feel for somebody. And, it's it's visceral, and so it it stands as the deepest human emotion. It's very much like the word sympathetic, where sympathetic is is where you're on plane with them and you're entering into the world. Here, it's talking about entering deeply into a tender affection, and and it's it's a very important word. It's a deeper word than the word sympathy, but it's parallel with it. Do you, are you compassionate with people? In other words, it's, it's the kind of, of emotion that when, when, matter of fact, do a study in the Gospels. Whenever Jesus was moved with compassion, what happened? Action. 
And so when you're compassionate, when, you, when, you're, when you're tender-hearted, the end result is that you have action behind that. It's not enough to pity or to sympathize. It means action. Let me give you the fifth one, a humble mind. You know what a humble mind is? It means to have a modest opinion of yourself. Don't be like Muhammad Ali. I remember this like it was yesterday. There was, remember those Time Life video commercials, you old timers? Remember those? One time they had a Time Life um, advertisement for the life of Muhammad Ali. Remember those boxing matches? When I was a kid, I, I can remember that was like a major event. You went over to people's house, you had popcorn and whatever else, and, and watched Muhammad Ali fight whoever he was. One of those, in that Time Life commercial, there's one of them. And remember, he was always running his mouth, wasn't he? And and one of them, he's all beat up and bloodied, and he's got swole, swollen spots. And, he's in, and it's in between rounds. He's sitting in the corners, trainers working on it. And he's going, I'm the greatest. I'm awesome. And he says, I'm beautiful. And the trainer responds, says, you're not beautiful. Shut up. <laughs> Muhammad Ali, don't be like Muhammad Ali. Have a modest opinion of yourself. So here's the question. (laughs) How do you know you're humble? Have you ever asked that question? If you're doing something, you say to yourself, you know, that was pretty humble of me. (laughs) You're probably not very humble. How do you know you're humble? Humble people are conscious of their own position as God's creatures entirely dependent upon Him. And therefore, they're able to think of others more highly than they do themselves. They understand that they are entirely dependent upon God for everything. Genuine humility begins with seeing who God is and then seeing who we are. Isn't that what happened with Isaiah? He saw the train of of Jesus in the temple. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the He filled the temple. His glory was filling the temple. What was his response? Woe is me, for I am undone. Genuine humility begins with seeing who God is and seeing who we are. When I see how great the offense I committed against God, it helps me to minimize the offenses that others commit against me. When I compare myself to other people, I might find uh, 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 grounds for increasing my offenses, right? Increasing my, well, at least I'm not like Ed, right? I'm not like happy. Man, no. When we look at Jesus Christ and we realize how much we have offended Him, when we realize how much we have been given by Him, it humbles us and it causes us to to look at everybody else through a new lens. And so we bless those people now these are all blessings that we give to those in our spiritual family but what about the people who are not so kind to us what do we do well that's verse number nine let's look at verse number nine we also are to bless them it says do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless For to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus? You've heard it said, he said this in the Sermon on the Mount, love your friends and hate your enemies. Remember? And what did he say? 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of God. Because he goes on to say that God causes the rain for the just and the unjust, doesn't he? For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's the standard. That's the standard. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is, is perfect. And so we don't just clench our teeth and, and bear it and remain s- uh, silent when somebody is persecuting us, reviling us. You see, we're not only to do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, when people are doing this to us, we are to bless We are to actively seek their blessing. And this can only be done through the new life power of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it can be done. This word bless is is such a very interesting word. It means that we are to ask God to show favor and grace upon those who have verbally injured us. Practice speaking like this. Um, to, to bless people. We're, we're saying when somebody reviles us, when somebody lies about us, when somebody says all kinds of hateful things, we ask God, God, please view that person with favor. Now, what would that mean? What are you actually praying for? You're praying for their salvation. Can you do that? Now, I, I'm going to tell a story. I failed that miserably. I failed miserably when I was a young man. I was in the ministry, and this actually came from somebody in our church. I was in the ministry, and the church that I was in had a bunch of people who were King James only. And if you've been in that type of church, you know what I'm talking about. This man found out that I was not King James only. And he was a very influential man. He had a Sunday school class of about 70 men. And he started a series after after talking to me to my face first. Started a series on the apostate. That's the name of the series. Now, what's an apostate? Apostate is somebody who claims to have believed the gospel, but is in fact going to hell. Right? Turn their back on Jesus Christ. And he proceeded in the Sunday school series to describe me. These messages were taped. They were literally sent all over the world. We would hear back from Asia, Southeast Asia. We would hear back from Africa, people blessing his, liking his Sunday school lessons. And um, it was all over, all over the place. And people in the church knew he was talking about me. And um, the bottom line is the leadership of the church did not do anything about it. And I lost friends probably half the men in that class no longer claim to be my friends in that church. It was a terrible situation for me. But what was worse was my reaction. My reaction was I couldn't stand to see that man. If I saw him in the hallway, I would go a different direction. I would sit on the opposite side of the church from him. Of course, a lot of times I had to sit up on the platform during those times. But but my reaction was terrible. I could not say, God deal favorably with that man as i got to um and by the way personal illustration i realize 
But as I got older, as I became a pastor, it grieved me how weak my flesh was. And um, I realized that I was not reacting right. And I asked the Lord to forgive me for all that. And amazingly enough, a situation came up in my church in Wisconsin. A man opposed me and called me all sorts of names. And bottom line is uh, the man hated me. And he let people know that he hated me. And um, it was obvious from the, the, the meetings that our leadership had in the church that this man had been in the church for 30-something years and had never been saved. He was a lost man. And the Lord had done such a work in my heart that I was able to pity that man and pray for his salvation. Even though he hated me, even though he ran me down, anytime he got a chance to people verbally, said all kinds of nasty things to me, it was a... It was, a, it was a time where I pitied him. And if you have the life of Jesus Christ in you, you have that supernatural ability to bless those and pity those who run you down. What I want to do is, because when we say bless, we think of all sorts of things. If you're from a, 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 a Catholic Orthodox background, you think bless of something that a priest would do. What does it mean to bless someone? Let's just talk about that. Practically speaking, I want to give you uh, five things real quick. What does it mean to bless someone when they're reviling you? By the way, this is not original with me. This is I read this, and I'm, I'm using this. Number one, when somebody's reviling you, what does it mean to bless them? Love them unconditionally. Jesus already talked about it. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love them unconditionally. Uh, love is not an emotion. Love is a choice. It means to treat them with favor. Treat them in a way, in, um, in a God, godly, Christ-like way. God blesses the just and the unjust alike. Number two, pray for their salvation. And by the way, I think that's what Peter meant in verse number nine here when he says, bless them. I think he meant actively seek their salvation. Pray for their salvation. Number three, but by the way, and the reason I say that is theological because the only people that are blessed on the face of the earth, according to Scripture, are those who are believers. Okay? Number three, be thankful for them. Isn't that inherent in the idea of bless, be thankful? Isn't that hard to do? The first situation I was talking about in Memphis, I was thankful for that. You know why? Because God later on, showed me how my heart was not with his heart. And so it was a thankful thing. By the way, let me say this about this guy. I went back to that church some years later, and he saw me, and he came up and wrapped his arm. He never apologized, but he came up and wrapped his arm around me and said, how are you doing? And it can happen, right? Um, So be thankful for those who are against you. It'll help you not be like Muhammad Ali. Because some of what they say may be true. Number four, speak well of them. When somebody is evil to you or unkind to you or insulting to you, speak well of them. Find some way to speak highly of them. Return praise for their pain. Even if it's, wow, I am amazed at how creative they are at coming up with things they don't like about them. Be seriously speak well of them. Genuinely speak well of them. And number five, 
seek and desire their well-being. Luke 6.28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. One could say that this is desiring their well-being. Can you do that? It's very hard. I'm going to get real for just a minute. It may be that you're a wife and I'm talking about your husband. It may be that you're an adult child and I'm talking about your elderly parent. It may be that I'm talking about your neighbor. Or it could be I'm talking about one of your children. We need to bless those who revile us. Remember the goal. What's the goal? The goal is so that you can proclaim the gospel by living it to them, right? Well, let's move on very quickly. Why do we do this? We do it to proclaim the gospel, but there is something in it for us in a way. How does he end it? He has a so that phrase. That you may obtain a blessing. Christians are called to bless so that they will inherit the blessing of eternal life. This is not work salvation. Remember, Jesus is teaching that if we are willing to forgive others, it is because we realize how much we have been forgiven. And that works the same way here. When we are willing to bless, we are saying we understand how much we have been blessed. See? And so it's not a work salvation that he's talking about. It's a working out of our knowledge of Jesus Christ and how much we have been blessed. Well, the last thing I want to say, and I don't know how else to say it. I'll just say it this way. Enjoy the good life. What do I mean? What do I mean by enjoying the good life? Let's read this little verses 10 to 12 and just say something very quickly about them. Peter goes back to an Old Testament to reinforce his point. This is Psalm 34, verses 12 to 15. And he says this, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, would, you, would that be the good life? Would you call it that? The good life? Let him see his tongue. Let him, I'm sorry, keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord are against all who do evil. This is almost a direct quotation of Psalm 34, 12 to 15, which begins a couple verses earlier by saying, Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have tasted and you have seen the goodness of the Lord, then you will want to bless those around you because you realize the tremendous blessing of God on your life. You could you could rephrase Peter's words this way. Can I rephrase it? Verse number 10. I will not use my tongue to hurt my brother or another person. I will not use my tongue to mis- mislead my brother. Verse number 10. Verse number 11. I will swerve from evil to encourage people to righteousness. I will take the initiative to repair relationships. Do you do that? Do you take an initiative to, to repair relationships? Now, why would we do all this? Because he sums it up by saying that the eyes of the Lord, they are on the righteous. And the, these eyes of the Lord on the righteous, they are not for judgment. Because he's scanning our lives. He's watching everything in order. Why is he watching our lives? He says it right here. That he may hear our prayers. And when God is watching you, and when God is hearing your prayers, it means that He's also answering your prayers. 
And so we, we bless other people. We act like Jesus Christ because God wants to bless us. He wants to, to answer our prayers. And that ought to be a great incentive to live like this. It ought to be a great incentive for you to live with the right attitude, the right response, and to obey the right standard. No matter how much hostility, no matter how severe the persecution, no matter how unfair the treatment, no matter how difficult the circumstances, this is how to live and love the good life in confidence that the Lord is what? What is He doing? He's watching. The Lord is watching. And waiting to meet your every need. That's the idea. Peter is simply saying, look, you can live like this. You can bless those who revile you. You don't have to get your own pound of flesh. You don't have to take vengeance. Um, you don't, you don't have to take it into your own hands because I'm watching and I'm willing to bless you for this. You can, you can live with a gracious and humble spirit and a harmonious attitude. You can give back love to your enemies even when they hate you. Don't retaliate because you can live under the authority of the Word of God with a controlled tongue and controlled lips, turning away from evil, doing good, pursuing peace, and hunting after it no matter how intensely you want to get your pound of flesh. That's supernatural living, isn't it? And you can live like this without fear, knowing that whatever difficulty you get into, you don't have to be the one that gets you out. That's God's job. All you need to do is let the Lord know, and He's ready to hear your prayer. I don't know what's going on in your life. There might be somebody right now reviling you, and it could be a family member. It could be a spouse. It could be somebody at work. You don't have to get yourself out of the situation because God is watching your life and He's wanting to answer your prayer. And you just look at Him and say, God, help. That's all you're going to say. You're left here in the world to be a witness. You witness the goodness of God with a foretaste of heavenly fellowship and be a blessing to believers in the assembly. Secondly, you witness by blessing those who oppose you. And when you do, You'll experience the good life and God will be attendant to your prayers. That's such a wonderful promise. Lord, we thank you for the, the blessings of being in Jesus Christ. I love being in the fellowship of believers where there is sympathy and, and harmony and brotherly love and humble minds and unity of minds. Lord, what a... What a blessing that is to be in that kind of fellowship. And Lord, we're, we're put here in the world so that we can witness and we do it by our works, by blessing people. And so I pray for the one who, whose strength right now is failing because they're being reviled. They're being verbally assaulted. They're being threatened maybe. Maybe they're being lied about. I don't know. I just pray that at this time you will strengthen them so that they can bless that person. And that you will strengthen them to bless that person so that their prayers will be heard because your eyes are on them with favor and kindness. And you're just waiting to bless them for their obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen.